welcome to episode 70 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. This week, we turn our attention to the quality of our working from home arrangements. Pilar does join us, but from a cupboard in Spain, and I chat with Professor Sakari Cooper, CBE, about micro frustrations for home workers. As ever, you can find show notes for this episode at worklifepsych.com slash podcast. Please do get in touch with your feedback or questions via Twitter at mypocketpsych or via the contact form at worklifepsych.com slash contact. Thanks for listening. Pilar, it's great to have you back. Missed you last episode. How are you doing? I am doing all right. And uh, sorry, I couldn't be there with you to wrap up our uh, our series on coaching and guiding the listeners through the process of coaching. So yeah, I am in a cupboard, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah. Would you would you like to elaborate? <laughs> well, I. So um, we were going to go on holiday and then there was the quarantine rule. So we decided to stay for longer in Spain. And so any recordings or anything I had, uh, I had to schedule in the, in the flat. But it's actually been, the recording has been quite nice because I'm not inside the cupboard. I'm actually in front of it with the doors open and a duvet hanging uh, between the doors. So that's quite fun. Uh, but, but I am in a different space. So that's had its challenges. It it sounds like it. I, I wish we had made a video uh, <laughs> podcast so people could see you. Uh, but you're um, uh, able to cope with it uh, nonetheless. It's a, it's a really good point, isn't it? That that some of us can do what we do for a living, kind of from everywhere if we're connected, and you are connected. Well, the connection also is has been an interesting one because I do take for granted now how much my home broadband takes or even my internet at home, because I've been working from the data of my mobile phone. We have a plan for 20 gigas for the month. Right. And let's just say that a podcast recording takes one giga. <laughs> so, right. uh, and it, it, but it's really like the things you take for granted now. And every time I need to do something to connect to the internet, I double, I think twice about it. I realize how much of my work is done online and I realized how much I like my little corner in the London flat <laughs> to mm -hmm. work in rather than the corner in this other lounge uh, with the, all the light and uh, not a great chair. It's really, yeah, working from anywhere is hard, but, um, but it's also different. You know, it's, it, it's good for the brain also to, to be in a different environment. Well, it's keeping you on your toes, but I think it's really relevant um, to our episode today, where we're, we're, we're going to discuss um, working at home when it's maybe not ideal. And um, if uh, the title didn't give it away, um, listeners, we're, we're, this is going to feature an interview with um, Sir Kerry Cooper, um, um, really um, well-known, uh, esteemed, qualified, uh, excellent occupational psychologist. And you've probably seen Kerry on the BBC. You've probably heard him on the radio at some point. So I'm not going to go on too much about, about him. We'll have the interview with him a little bit later, but he's the professor of organizational psychology and health at Manchester Business School. And, um, he, his, his work has focused on well-being at work, uh, stress, stress management, um, relationships at work, the whole psychosocial element of work. And I was delighted he was able to make some time to have a brief chat with me about these, what he's referring to as micro frustrations when we're working at home in, let's say, less 
than ideal circumstances. And that is true for so many people who are having to work at home. It's not by choice because, again, we're August 2020 discussing this. And for many people, they have not returned to their workplace. They're still working at home. And as we've said before, potentially with other people who are working at home and potentially with kids um, and pets and everything else uh, that appears on a Zoom call. So it was it, it was great to to chat with Kerry again. Met him a few times over the years at conferences and such, and uh, he's um, he's a great guy to to speak with. But I think before we dive into that, Pilar, it'd be useful to just pick up a couple of the points because it was just he and I, and I'd love to discuss them with you before we dive into that interview. And I think what's really come through in that and what we've seen in the press and on TV lately is that not everybody has an ideal home working setup. And we need to remember that when we're discussing it. So just like we've said on previous episodes, when we think about the workplace, well, that that isn't just people in suits sitting at desks with laptop computers. The the workplace is a very varied um place. But when we think about people working at home, well, as, as some of our conversations have illustrated, some of those setups are really, really less than ideal. And of course, over time, they'll have an impact on us as, as human beings. Yeah. And I think that when we're working with other people, it's good to remember that as well, that, uh, well, we might be comfortable if we're lucky, but we need to um, be remembering that other people have other contexts. And yeah, I think I think that's that's important because it does affect us. It affects how we, in, a, in inverted commas, turn up to work uh, and it affects mm. how motivated we are. It affects how much we're enjoying or not the work. So yeah, it's a really good reminder. It's something that I think we will all need to bear in mind for the future. And without wanting to be too negative about it, there's every likelihood that this will happen again. And so, you know, forewarned is forearmed. And, and it might be a good, a good idea for people who have worked at home for a period to, to reflect on that and think about what they'll do differently the next time it's required or the next time they choose to do it um, and how they'll organize themselves and what kind of equipment they'll need and what kind of discussions they'll have with their colleagues and with the people they live with so that they can make it a more positive experience. Because both you and I have um, kind of stumbled across commentary in the press and research that has shown that has it has been a far from pleasant or even healthy experience for for many many people. And one of the articles that you shared, uh, Richard, I think it was on depression. Do you want to just can I refer to that? Yes. Yeah, please, please fire ahead. <laughs> so you had an article in The Guardian about depression in British adults. Uh, it said, well, the headline uh, doubles during coronavirus crisis. And I think one of the things to remember is the, the impact uh, on young people, especially because of that socialization mm. that tends to happen when you're in your early career. And that that has, that's really, I think they, they're the, the segment of the, of the knowledge workers that have probably um, suffered most during it because they probably don't have the setup to work uh, comfortably and they have that uh, socialization that they're missing out on. And I wanted to add something that I remembered also I was listening to, I think it was Health Check the other day, and they said that the, um, the number of 30 to 40-year-olds uh, having liver uh, alcohol-related conditions after lockdown had shot up. So I think that really shows also, I mean, 
I'm not saying these people are working. There's lots of reasons why people would have been uh, drinking during lockdown. But I think that that's another thing to to bear in mind. It's really important. And, and that specifically is a topic that I've been covering off on various webinars I've been doing for clients over the last three months. The, the importance of identifying and using healthy and sustainable coping strategies. And rather than falling into habits, um, that can easily start with, you know, a glass of wine and that sort of spiral out of controls that can lead to the kind of health damage that we ideally want to avoid. And it's very easy for habits to develop and to uh, continue and for us to become reliant on those things. So again, I come back to my point about reflection. What have you been doing? What would you continue to do? Um, what might you start to do that represents a more effective way of coping with the experience? And your point about the article in, in The Guardian about depression in, in adults in Britain, it, it also highlights something that, yes, younger employees will miss out on the social aspects of the workplace and the opportunity to learn from their colleagues and to get support from their colleagues. And even if it's just, uh, you know, a one word answer to a simple question, it, it can be easier for some people when they're they're face to face. But also, as we saw elsewhere, they may also be more likely to be living in less than ideal circumstances and to be stuck in those less than ideal circumstances for the majority of each 24 hours is really is really not good. So it's not just the age, it's also what comes with that. Um, there's an article I'll put in the show notes that I, I um, read in the, the Irish Times, which um, was uh, published on the 18th <laughs> of August. Um, I was frantically looking for the date there, but it has an interview with a guy called Jake, he's 26, and he's living with three other people in um, a rented house in Dublin. And he makes the point, and we've mentioned it before, Pilar, um, you know, in a house share, the only private personal space you have is your bedroom. But during COVID, your bedroom has become your workspace. In the evenings, you want to switch off after work. And if you're in the office, you walk home, you actually leave that place. Now, when the only place you have privacy is also your workspace, you can't switch off because you associate it with work. And I think that's a really um, good but but sad illustration of what many younger um, employees um, have had to face, that they haven't had a break from the workspace because the workspace is also the home space, is the sleep space mm. um, and that that's going to take its toll over time but you know the good news is at the end of that story if you if you want to have a read of it that um, he's managed to get back into the office for a few days a week to mix it up a little bit and I know from talking to my clients that as they open their workplaces there's a, a, min a minority um, of people who are desperate to get back into that workplace for a variety of reasons there's other people that are finding it well, they prefer to have a mix, really, and some that never want to return. But regardless, if anyone's going to be working at home, I think we need to bear these these really important points in mind. I would be really interested if any listeners have gone back to their workplace uh, and or or have colleagues who've gone back to the workplace, how that is panning out. Because there's so many, um, apart from the fact that some people will be 
working together in the office and other people won't or will stay at home for most of the part. However, there's also, I have a couple of thoughts. Is uh, One if the, is the use of masks in the office, how that might be affecting communication. And the other, someone, mm. I was t- having a conversation the other day with someone and also what's the difference going to be with colleagues who have been working at home versus colleagues who were fur- furloughed and so we we will have experienced lockdown and the whole uh, pandemic in a different way. And then I just think all the dynamics have, they could be very interesting. And I'd love to hear from listeners. I, I think that's an excellent point. And it's not something that we've all experienced before. Mm. You know, it, it, it's one thing if we all come back from a shared break and we're kind of catching up because we've had similar experiences. I'm thinking of something like the Christmas holiday or something. Mm. But when some of us have continued to work and some of us have been furloughed and some of us have had a great experience at home and maybe some of us had, had much less of a positive experience, interaction, communication could be very interesting. Uh, it could be positive, but uh, there, there may be some real challenges there. And I wonder how many organizations have given that thought. Um, because I think the advice that's been given to organizations, you know, good quality advice is really first and foremost about health and safety. Um, I wonder how much has gone beyond that into the psycho- psychosocial side of things and relationships and um, psychological well-being uh, in addition to our physical well-being and, and keeping um, physically well by going into the workplace. There's a real feeling that there's been a stage of working in the pandemic and then we're into the next stage, which is Mm. the first one was all about rushing uh, and and coping and crisis management and trying to figure out how we were going to do this apart from all the other uncertainty and and terribleness. (laughs) Um, And Mm. now it's, uh, I, I think, I feel like it's a time to think about what we did that could work, think about what uh, we would prefer to change and have different type of conversations and different focus. Uh, So I think that's also quite interesting to maybe, I I don't know, I always think it helps to, to, to name that we've gone through a certain kind of experience and start to get ready for a different one, which is going to be, again, completely full of uncertainties and very challenging. It, it absolutely could. And, and that sharing, I think, could be really positive. The sharing among uh, team members just about what works for them, what doesn't work for them, so we can learn from each other. And it could be simple things like, you know, it could be something like someone says, did you know there's a there's a tax break for doing X at home? And someone else says, I found this app. I mean, as as um, we've encountered here, here's an app that that um, replicates the noise of, of a cafe in your ears so that you can focus on what's in front of you. Um, you know, that kind of sharing. And it might it may not all. In fact, it probably won't all come top down in a newsletter from the organization. It, it's going to be shared. So, you know, I think that that could provide a really good uh, channel for people to learn from each other and um, share their experiences and also normalize the fact that, yeah, sometimes it's particularly tough. This isn't just working at home. It's it's also dealing with the uncertainty of what's happening to the economy and other people's jobs. And are the kids going back to school? Are they not? Uh, which schools when? And the very disjointed aspect of it. And, and you know, you and I um, are normally uh, based in the UK. And even within the UK, there are differences depending on um, where you are as to what's permitted and what's not. And it can be very complex, if not a little bit overwhelming for people. Yeah. And um, the other thing I, I like to to add is a, 
as, as well as things that might have worked for us that you were talking about uh, uh, sharing that is uh, the things that we might want to not carry on doing. Uh, and uh, I mm. wanted, uh, I shared with you, Richard, but the, you had problems accessing it. So I, I, so sorry, listeners, if there's problems accessing, it's an uh, HBR article. So sometimes you have, you're restricted um, access to a number of them during the month. But Microsoft analyzed the data on uh, their, rem their remote workforce and what, was, what they'd been doing, what their employees had been doing. And one of the things they found is that uh, in their China office, when people had gone back to the workplace, These newly developed habits during the pandemic of um, working longer hours, which we know many people have done, and also working through the weekend, which is probably more due to crisis than working at home. But they found that these were continuing, even though we had changed the way in which we were working. They had gone back to the office, but they, this had stuck. So I, I think it's also interesting mm. to, to note that, uh, that because of all the uncertainty and because of all the diversity in the teams, we might have developed habits that actually maybe we don't want to continue. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. I, I think it is, and I think it, it's, it, it won't just be limited to there. Um, I, I think that the same, the same kind of results could be identified in, in, any, in any data set of that size. Uh, I think it's really important to be mindful that those habits can, can spill over into something that we don't want. But even questioning, how will we return to work? Questioning what we'll do and what we won't do as a team. You know, I, I, I've just encountered so much pushback against endless video calls, for example, and maybe more discussion around when we really want to do that and when we could use another channel to, to exchange information or make decisions rather than, as you and I have discussed previously, Pilar, that this need to, um, replicate an office environment 100% and, and get stuck doing that. So maybe lots of the things that were givens are now up for discussion and maybe there's better ways of doing them. Maybe now while things are disrupted, that's a good time to explore that. I was thinking about it because we, we're, well, at least I am and you as well, advocates of understanding different kinds of communication and of giving asynchronous communication a chance. So we're not on mm. meetings all the time. That's so important. One thing I did think though was, because originally my thinking was, okay, if we start using the office still to work together. What are the things that are done best there? And I thought, oh, meetings, because they're more comfortable than online. And then I thought, well, if you have to start looking at some kind of social distancing uh, or um, how do they call it here? Oh, I forgot. Anyway, <laughs> they have a different like danger distancing or some safety distance, they call it in Spain, rather ah. than social distance, which I like. So if you have some kind of distance that you need to keep between people, plus you're wearing masks, maybe in the end, a video meetings from people in their homes where you can see their whole faces might be the most comfortable option. Um, so I'm thinking that even the way in which we are using technology, once we have this workspace in the current conditions, we might also have to revisit everything. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of revisiting yeah. to be done. Absolutely. And the, and the how and when yes. of work as well, because as we've seen, not everyone is replicating their standard working hours or, or, or rhythms when they're working at home, because sometimes that just will not work for them. And do we need to return to what was the nine to five or, you know, I, I use that term loosely, um, but is everyone expected to go back to that? Or will there be more acceptance that, hey, you know, you can get the best out of people if you give them a little bit more latitude as to how they organize themselves and when they do that work? I'm nodding. <laughs>
Good, it's good, good. This is not a video podcast. You know what? You've you've reminded me as well. It's time to plug something. Uh, plug the um, the webinar that you and I are going to be yes. running in October because this this speaks to this enormously. Um, we're gonna we're gonna run a session called Sustainable Online Collaboration, which is all about this topic of asynchronous work and some principles on on how to do that well. Um, this is a free session, like all of the work life webinars. You can find all the details at worklifepsych.com slash webinars. Um, they are free, but we do ask that you register um, and then uh, we'll be able to make the recordings of those available as well. They're all on the YouTube channel, which you can find at worklifepsych.com slash YouTube. End of plugs. Well, and if you attend and you listen to the show, tell us. Tell us in the chat <laughs> or tell Richard on Yeah, email. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I'm always interested to know how people find these events and these things. Um, how do they arrive at the work-life psych doorstep? So um, the, the only other thing I thought that, w- that would be useful, um, the, the psychosocial aspect of work we've touched on before in episode 62, when Dr. Antonia Dietman joined me to talk about her research into social chats at work. And it strikes me that for some people, those are at risk when they are working um, asynchronously, you know, that, that actually, how can you make sure that you have them and signal that chats are welcomed and conversation is welcomed and, and you know, instead of assuming that because um, there is a system, there is technology, assuming it will be used well. I don't think that's the case always, is it, Pilar? No, it's not, unless you have agreed how you're going to use it and what kind of processes uh, and how you're going to use it to communicate and what information you need to communicate about each other and your work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. And I think the the final thing I'd like to throw into this, and I know we will return to it, but it, it re- my conversation with Carrie really got me thinking about the physical working environment at home. You know, Carrie was very interested in, in talking about sound, you know, being one of those things, uh, quality of sound when on, on, on conference calls, video calls, whatever. But for so many people, um, there are distractions due to sound in their in their home when they're trying to work. There is um, a, an inappropriate workspace or a lack of space to do the work. But when we were recording, now it's passed, thankfully, but we were in the middle of this heat wave. And it was all I could think of when talking to him was, this room is heating up something awful. I can't turn on my fan. I can't open the window because of the noise while recording. Um, you know, the temperature in a space really does impact our ability to do a good job. So I suppose what I'm getting at here is in addition to advice about setting up a laptop and having a good chair and all that kind of stuff, we really do need to broaden the conversation a bit to talk about the suitability of a space if you're going to work at home and techniques for managing that physical environment so that you can do your best stuff um, and and really thrive and not be putting up with what Kerry referred to as those micro frustrations. Because I think as all of us humans know, there's only so many of those frustrations you can put up with before it becomes a bit overwhelming. Yeah, on the point of uh, of temperature, I think you're right that it often gets missed when we're talking about designing the perfect home workspace. And what I'm thinking is how much we take for granted that offices tend to be at 
sometimes at the ideal temperature for most people <laughs> because for mm-hmm. someone who doesn't like air con even in the summer uh, but th- that's um i think that's that's really important how much we could be taking it uh, for granted um, i remember someone who runs a distributed company saying that one of their people was working from home but actually in the end she asked for a, a membership for a co-working space and the main reason was the heat she was living in Madrid and mm. her flat was just getting way too hot for a couple of the months a year. And so that's mm. another thing is to be thinking of that. And I th- I'm thinking even if you're thinking about how if you have an option to return to the office, that could be something that helps you decide when might be a good time to go to the office even. Might just be temperature. That might be something you can't control at home, but you are given in an office space. Exactly. And if even if we don't agree what the perfect temperature is, we know it's being controlled yes. and it's within a certain range in the office. I was in my office this morning for, I think, the second time since the 10th of March. And it's because I'm moving office. So I was doing a bit of reorganizing and, and getting ready in there. And it was the first thing I noticed. Mm. My God, it's lovely and cool in here. <laughs> um, and I realized how much I missed the, 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 the ability to control the temperature around me so uh, precisely. Um, so even if we, um, don't think people will be office based forever, we do need to think about these things that physiologically we need, never mind psychologically. So I think this is a really good time to move on to my conversation with Carrie. Um, listeners do get in touch with your questions or your comments about this topic. What's worked for you when you've been working at home? Uh, are you back in the office? What's that like? Or maybe what are your um, factors for making a decision as to whether you will or not? Are they about the physical space? Are they about collaboration and cooperation? Is it something to do with the length of time you would have to commute or concerns about your safety and and welfare? Uh, Do let us know. You can drop us a long message on the contact form, which is at worklifesite.com slash contact, or just send us a message via Twitter at mypocketpsych. Pilar, anything to throw into the mix before we hear from Carrie? No, just uh, enjoy the interview, listeners. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, That's it for uh, this episode. And thank you for listening. Carrie, it's great to be speaking with you this morning. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh, on the podcast. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. And we're talking in, I suppose, what everyone is calling strange times, interesting times, difficult times. Oh, absolutely. Very strange times indeed. And I think it's not just about working from home. It was about homeschooling for quite a lot of people. It's about going into a recession. It's the job and security people are feeling. It's everything, really. Uh, people being furloughed and, and will they have a job when they go back to work? All of that. And I think the recession, you know, about to hit us. Uh, will mean, for example, that more people will be working substantially from home so that the uh, uh, employer can keep the cost of, you know, offices down by potentially downsizing Mm. their central office environment. And so people will be working, I think, substantially from home, but going into a central office from time to time. And I think it's really important to to point out that we're not really talking at the moment about working from home as we've known it before. It's working at home while all of the other things are happening, potentially sharing your space with multiple other people who are trying to work. Oh, absolutely. Two out of every three families in the UK are working families, two earner families. 
And so you've got all the kind of noise that's going on and the interruptions and trying to get a routine going Mm -hmm. with you and your family, uh, with two members working and juggling kids and all of that, I think, has been very problematic. I think it will in the future still be to some extent problematic because we need some sense of routine. That's what work has given us. A central working environment has given us routine. We live in a box. We go to work in a box, uh, uh, i.e. a train, a tube, a bus or whatever. And then you go to a box, which is called the office and back. And those two have been segmented. But now I think uh, there's going to be it's going to be work life integration big time. Yeah, you you also in in many workplaces benefit from getting lots of visual cues of what's going on in terms of people taking breaks, going for lunch, leaving on time. And when people are in this working at home situation, we're seeing a lot of people's working hours extended. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when uh, Boris Johnson said, well, we need to get back to work. Are you kidding? (laughs) We have been working and not only have we been working, we've been working longer hours. The evidence is mounting. Uh, psychologists have been doing studies now to show that during this period of time, for several reasons, I mean, one was partly homeschooling when, if you had kids, but homeworking uh, has meant that people have been present in a way and have felt they needed to be present. So number one, you know, since you're available, can you do it? And can you do it for me tomorrow as opposed to September or October? Do it now. That kind of mentality, I think, has hit all of us. And uh, I think just the natural presenteeism of being worried about whether you'll have a job uh, come September, October, mm-hmm. and when they're opening up central office environments. So people have been going on a lot longer. They've been online a lot longer. And then consider that we've had an, uh, at least two hours a day of non-commute time. So we had much more personal disposable time to work. I think we've been working longer. We've been working harder. We've been working under, un, you know, lack of, uh, unsystematic systems. I mean, lack of routine mm-hmm. uh, and with trying to juggle family commitments. And, of course, not everybody has the ideal physical work environment in the home. I've, I've been working with teams, uh, the members of which are maybe house sharing with a load of other people and they're trying to find a really quiet spot and maybe they're working in their bedroom all day. Uh, maybe there isn't another room that working parents can use and they're dealing with all of the distractions. And, you know, it, it's not that we can fall back on this image of people stepping into their nice home office, being productive and finishing at the work at the end of the working day. Absolutely. And this is particularly, I think, a problem for young uh, professionals and young people starting in the work environment. Think about it. The, the uh, What they have, the facilities they have at home are probably wholly inadequate for the majority of them, unless they're staying with their parents, for example. But most of them aren't, and they're sitting in a bed sit somewhere. Uh, and also, they need the office for their own personal development. Say people have graduated or gone from FE or university for the first five years and they're in their job for the first five years, they need to be in a central office environment because that's where they learn a lot of their skills and their development takes place uh, from line managers and other people in the office. They're not there for them. So there's a whole load of uh, problems, I think, for younger people that we haven't really concentrated on. And 
we both know that the, there's been really good quality research done for decades on the importance of having a, a safe and a healthy working environment and of course it's enshrined in legislation um, and you know many organizations do a great job of providing a safe and a healthy physical work environment when we're outside of that we're working at home what are the implications for our well-being oh yeah absolutely very negative potentially the institute of uh, employment studies found i think it was in the first two months uh, they were doing some work on um, muscular skeletal problems and they found that there was a lot of them uh, because people don't have the right chairs, the right, uh, just the infrastructure mm. to actually work from home. And by the way, it's not just the young as well. It's, it's other people as well might not have it. And, uh, you know, and also trying to cope with kids coming in, your partner coming in, trying to negotiate who, where, where people are going to work from, and you may end up on your, you know, on your bed in your bedroom, uh, doing work for a couple hours. Health and safety is, as you can't, you, you can't dictate for that. I know a lot of employers have sent, you know, sent chairs to people and tried to help them as much as they can, but they tend to be the big employers. Yet two out of three people are employed by the SME sector, mm. by the small, medium-sized enterprises. And they don't have the money or the facilities to do that. So, yeah, I think this has been, let's say, challenging times. Definitely from that, that wor uh, workplace well-being perspective, we couldn't touch on this subject at all without mentioning technology, though, because so much of our work is now mediated by technology. And I think it's fair to say not everyone is used to using the technology in the way they have had to in the last four or five months. Oh, absolutely. Not only that, given that we're working 100% remotely now, it'll it'll change in the sense that we'd be working substantially from home, but not necessarily 100% remotely. We are totally dependent on that technology. And the problems most of us have experienced, the problems with a variety of different platforms, the problems with the sound, with the visuals, with everything to do with the technology has been enormous, and particularly the kind of variety, in my view, it, the way it affected me, the variety of platforms that I had to go on. Uh, then I had to have sp uh, special um, uh, ear earphones for for uh, certain platforms or for certain um, uh, lectures and things I was giving. Uh, I had to have uh, at certain platforms I couldn't even get on. It was difficult. They weren't very good. And I think the EPOS study, which I think was a very interesting one, uh, where they were looking at what how people were responding to both the visuals but uh, particularly the audio stuff, found that something like a quarter of people experienced stress just from the audio problems that they were experiencing. I had trouble getting earphones that would work on certain platforms. Mm. And, uh, I, you know, that was, that was a problem. But it was also, um, it's the way that that process has been managed as well using the technology. So some uh, organizations were pretty clever and they do uh, preliminary work, uh, prep work, before you actually went live with a, a, a webinar or a, a lecture or a meeting and they would trial it, but the vast majority didn't. And then you're there trying to get on and 
everybody's in the guest green room and you know mm-hmm. it was uh, i think it's been a nightmare for all of us and also i think the other thing psychologically richard which i think affected a lot of people you know i think the, the in the lexicon of the future will be zoomed out mm. that will be there because i think also doing meetings webinars and everything else for long periods of time is more tiring than being face to face for a long period of time I've found that really interesting and I've seen exactly the same thing um, and that so many um, uh, teams, so many employers are replicating the office environment at home by just scheduling meeting after meeting after meeting mediated by an online platform might be Zoom. I mean, Zoom is kind of like the Hoover of <laughs> online platforms now. We're all calling it Zoom, but yeah. it is having an impact on people and they are finding it tiring. Why is that? Why is it so much more difficult than face-to-face meetings? Okay, I think, well, uh, you know, obviously, to some extent, it depends on the technology, but they're, ver- they're fairly similar from that point of view. I think why was because we have to pay more attention. Well, number one, we don't have the nonverbal cues. We don't have the eye contact, the tactile, the body language. Everybody is just facing you. And a lot of the nonverbals are important in communication. And so I'm talking and giving a, a, at a webinar and I'm saying something or, or I'm in a meeting and doing that and I'm not able to see everybody's reaction to what I'm saying. It's hard work. Mm. So And you're not getting there because they usually go on mute so that you can talk you know, and then somebody else comes in and they, you go on mute and they come off mute. And that means you're not getting any reaction from anybody, which which I think finds it's, for me anyway, and for I think quite a lot of people, very, very frustrating, very psychologically difficult, because I don't know whether I'm really communicating or not, Mm -hmm. and how they're actually receiving my communication. You may get a little picture, uh, a little pic of three or four people there, but they try to be po-faced themselves. So you're not actually getting the real reaction that you need, and therefore you're straining in your communication process, which you wouldn't do eyeball to eyeball because you're picking up body language, you're picking up facial expression more, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so on. And you just—I don't think you you get that as much, and that—and that's the problem. It's quite interesting because if we go back to the EPOS thing, it was quite interesting. They uh, collected some data, or they—they. They, uh, mentioned that Microsoft Teams reported that actually daily the daily record of 2.7 billion meeting minutes in one day is what we're all doing now wow. with Microsoft Teams. 2.7 billion meeting minutes. I mean, it, and, and also I think we're having more meetings, by the way, mm-hmm. online because people are feeling insecure about their jobs. Know that everybody is locked down and therefore call meetings as a means of showing their commitment. It's, it's a form of, uh, of electronic presenteeism. Presenteeism, absolutely. And, and the way you've described the difference between uh, technology-mediated and, and face-to-face uh, communication, the, the online meetings sound a lot more like a performance rather than an interpersonal communication. You know, this keeping yeah. up appearances, this presenting without getting anything back, and, and potentially... A bit of me search, not research, but potentially that feeling of being braced for something going wrong any minute, like someone walking in behind you or kids or Absolutely. animals. Yeah, uh, by the way, I think that's a real 
uh, problem area. It's quite interesting because I think there was, uh, was it the ONS or the IECS, uh, the Institute of Employment? So I can't remember who did it, but it was quite an interesting one where they found that uh, for women, uh, they got very upset if their partner came in view because they want to appear very professional. So if either the kids or dogs or partners come in or get involved in some way, walk past, <clears throat> excuse me, their um, computer, uh, they don't like it. Men are less bothered by that. Hmm. And I think it's about women feeling they need to be more professional. Hmm. Uh, and so that's quite fascinating that. And so if we look to the future and we imagine that, you know, working at home, working from home, uh, at least part time is, is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. Who, who owns this responsibility for, for a safe and healthy work environment in the home? Well, to be honest with you, that, that's a problem we had pre-COVID, the problem of the line manager. For me, the person who owns and takes should take the responsibility for people working from should be your boss, whoever that is, from shop floor to top floor. The difficulty we had pre-COVID, I run the National Forum for Health and Wellbeing at work, which is made up of 40 global employers, big ones, and they're very senior people on it, like HR directors, chief medical officers, and everything else. We meet quarterly. It's a volunteer organization. We've been doing this for three and a half years. We said, the pre-COVID, we said the most significant problem for the health and well-being of people was your line manager. If you have a line manager that manages you by praise and reward rather than fault-finding, who is aware when you're not coping, who gives you manageable workloads, realistic deadlines, etc., you're going to be less ill and you're going to be more productive. More than ever now, with people working remotely and into the future working substantially from home, uh, much more flexible working, we need more line managers who have EQ, who have emotional intelligence, social interpersonal skills. And the evidence that was collected in 2015 by the all-parliamentary group on management when the CMI was doing this work, and I was involved in that, uh, uh, meeting in Parliament saying what's a manager of the future should be like in 2020. This was in 2015. And we all said, more or less, and all the evidence that came our way, because we did it in the House of Commons, and we had it was like a select committee. It wasn't a select committee, but it was like a select committee. And the evidence we were getting from industry is we need more line managers with social skills. Mm. And... <clears throat> And, we just and, don't have them, Richard. That's our problem. Now, what do we do now? Yeah. Because more than ever before, how do you build teams? How do you go forward? How do you manage people who work remotely? We don't know the, have those kind of line managers. You know, our productivity per capita was poor pre-COVID. We were tied bottom seventh with Italy on productivity per capita in the G7 and 17th in the G20. That was pre-COVID. God only knows where we're going to be now. Um, unless we get the right kind of training, and I'm talking EQ, social, emotional training for line managers and recruit those kind of people and ensure that those skills have parity with their technical skills, uh, we're going to be in trouble. So it, it reflects the thing that's come up on our podcast before, which is about it's less important which tools you use. It's more important how they're used. 
and and uh, how they're encouraged to be used in the organization. So less about which video platform is used, but more about how a manager might communicate via that or might encourage an alternative communication. You know, could it be done with an email rather than a, a poor quality video call or too many of these video meetings? Well, I, I personally don't like the idea of doing that by email. I myself, Richard, would rather that we did it via the uh, face-to-face platform. So before we got interviewed just now, before you were interviewing me, I saw you, I'm talking to you, I got to know you a little bit. I think that's important. And therefore, I think visual platforms, but one-to-one. So in other words, just having a team meeting with 12 people on it is not enough. What a line manager has to do is have one-to-ones with everybody, their direct reports, once or twice a week, if we're going to work substantially from home. And and that is not about, are you achieving your objectives? That is, how are you doing? Mm. How are you feeling? What's going on? What's happening at home? Um, how are you feeling about, you know, are you feeling, you know, what, what's going on in your, in your family life? Um, how's your wife doing? I mean, it's about man management and best yeah and, that, and that's that's communication with intent rather than the accidental chats that might happen if you were co-located in the office yeah that's right exactly uh, that that that's the you know what everybody's talking about is a water cooler effect mm, mm. How, how do we regenerate it but i think it does have to be visual and i think it has to be non-work orientated where you you know you as a boss call up so how's everything going fred Oh, really? How's your wife doing? I know, you know, she was furloughed. Does she have a job still? Or when's she coming off furlough? Uh, oh, I hear one of your kids was ill. Da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. You know, just what we normally do in real life mm-hmm. when we're together. And I think we need to do that. And uh, I, the email, I think, is going to be a problem because I think I have found I've been email overloaded. And uh, even pre-COVID, it was bad. Yeah. But now, uh, you know, techno stress is really a big issue. And email, I think, because of the lack of nuance, because of the lack of the nonverbal forms of communication and the telegraphic nature of it in insecure times and people being overloaded, I'm, I'm sure we should be controlling emails a lot more than we are. One final question to, to wrap up. Um you know, we, we, we try to be evidence-based practitioners. We try to use what works and we try not to, to fall prey to cognitive biases when decision-making. What do you think, given the context we're in at the moment, um, what do you think are the research priorities? What is it we need to find out from an evidence-based perspective rather than an opinion perspective? Okay, about the, about the future workplace, in yeah. a sense. Yeah. Okay, well, number one... I mean, I think we have enough evidence. Funny enough, would you believe I was lucky as hell because I, I did a edited a book called Flexible Work, right, for the whole year. And the edit, what we did is I got academics across the world and different parts of the world to look at the evidence on flexible working. So the evidence is pretty profound that flexible working, working substantially from home but going into a central office, a mixed model approach works. It produces higher job satisfaction, etc. So I don't think we need research on does flexible working work. What I think we need is your line manager. What kind of a line manager do you have? What kind of management style do we need in the future, given the way in which work is going to 
configure itself in the future, i.e. people working substantially from home, having more autonomy and more control over their job. How do we, what style tends to exceed? My hypothesis is the style should be we need more emotionally intelligent people, mm. people with social interpersonal. I may be wrong, right? There's not a lot of evidence on that. It, it, so I think we need more evidence to show the kind of style and, and the specific behaviors that will help people, will enhance their health, enhance their productivity. That's one. And then I think we need to look at the platforms and say to ourselves, um, what, how, how do we operate with the social platforms, the variety of social platforms we have? What should be the pro forma about that? How should we manage this process if you're a line manager? You know, how many how many times a week should you do eyeball to eyeball one to ones? Mm. How many group meetings you should do? What do we do about the overload of emails? I think all the technology needs to be looked at. Uh, by the way, pre-COVID, there was a lot of work on what was called techno stress. That mm. was all about emails. And that work was fairly conclusive that people were just overloaded with emails. So we have to do something about the, the again guidance on email use to try to control electronic overload so i think we have a lot of potential interesting issues to explore in the workplace uh in the new world of work and what when when is a central office environment useful so we don't you know what what is it good for? We know it's good for meeting people's social needs and everything else. So again, organizations have to think, we gotta have a central office somewhere, even though we'll probably downsize it. And the purpose of it is X, Y, Z, etc. And the research could help us think about, well, it's about team building. Yes, it's about meeting our social needs, but there are other ways of meeting our social needs. How do we do that? God, the issues, Richard, are enormous. Yes, and we we can't cover them all in a brief conversation uh, like this today, but it's been super illuminating and really enjoyable to, to speak with you. Uh, Carrie, I'd just like to thank you again for your time. I know you have a lot on, so I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. I I'm going to add to the show notes uh, links to some of the things that you've mentioned uh, this morning, um, and uh, including the online profile so people can learn a little bit more about you. But, but for now, Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Great talking to you. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.